Go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to see you. I hope your July is going well. Hope you've had at least a shot to get a vacation in or some rest in before we start cranking up in the fall. Um, but hey, if you brought a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 16. We're going to pick up almost where we left off last week as we walk through this life of David. It has given you and me this wide open opportunity to look at some pretty key concepts. And although it comes out of a very ancient time and it comes out of very ancient text, it is incredibly timely for you and for me. We've been able to look at anguish and pain, been able to look at repentance, worship, community, covenant friendship. Last week we looked at what it means to have a soul that is thirsty. And today, I think as some of these things have been difficult topics, I think today is probably the most difficult, and that is the one of forgiveness. Today, we're going to find David forgiving someone that wounds him and wounds him pretty deeply, and I think this is going to be helpful for you and me. It's been, it's, it's been good for me because I think we could be kind of awkward when it comes to forgiveness. When it, when it means forgiving others, we could be awkward when it means receiving forgiveness. I think we could just be as much all thumbs with that. I think we can probably come up with some weird tricks of the trade to insert where we mean to forgive, we do something else, like cramming it down, suppressing it, just hoping to forget it, just trying to move past it, maybe pretending that it doesn't hurt, thing after thing after thing. And in all honesty, even the word forgiveness means different things to different people. Even Bible teachers do not all agree on what forgiveness is and when we give it. I mean, here are some key questions for you and me today. Is forgiveness always the right play? Always. I mean, do, when, when you forgive somebody, does it require they be repentant or do you forgive whether they repent or not? When you do forgive somebody, does that mean that you must reconcile with them and have <clears throat> tight, intimate community or does it not? I mean, it, it, on concept, it might seem pretty easy and clean, but when you're actually walking it out, it's get a lot more difficult than that. And American pop psychology isn't real helpful in this. I mean, if you're not careful... Pop psychology today will just breed a sense of narcissism. It makes us more self-inflective, more self-protective, more focused on ourselves. It can breed this soppy therapeutic understanding of what forgiveness is. And, and listen, the church can pick that up. We pick it up quickly as well. You ask your average Christian what it means to forgive, and they will say it's an internal feeling. Maybe it's their ability to control their anger or their hatred when someone has wronged them. Maybe they'll say forgiving is just forgetting what has been done. All of those fall short to what the Bible describes as good forgiveness, good biblical forgiveness. And, and listen, before we even jump in, before we start to carve into the passage today and let it cut us back, I think we should pray just for a second, just asking the Holy Spirit to show us where we have some low-grade unforgiveness in our life. It's, it's just too easy to hear a pastor start talking about something like unforgiveness and think this will be really good for the person next to me. This will be really good for them, forgetting that we've just learned how to live with a bitter vindication or a, a hunger for vindication deep inside of us. We've just gotten very good at it. So what I'd like to do is just for a, a brief second ask the Holy Spirit to help us by maybe shining the light in some areas of darkness in our life where we have carried unforgiveness for somebody or some people that have done something to us, all right? Father, we just ask that in this time, we don't march into this as business as usual, but we 
ask you to do work in our heart. And Lord, we need your spirit to come and surgically just show us. Just, just make it very obvious to us where it is that we have unforgiveness lurking, even if it's low grade, even if we've learned how to function at a pretty high capacity with it. Lord, that you would show us how it has been festering and growing And as much as we like to tell ourselves we have dealt with it, whatever it is, we certainly have not. That we could be honest with a passage like this. And we could let this passage really approach our lives with open arms, expecting you to do great things in us today, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, another challenge is to maybe be careful of letting the objections rule over you in a moment like this. That the most common objection I get when dealing with unforgiveness is, but Luke, you don't know what they did to me. If you did know what they did to me, you wouldn't even be talking to me about this. And the fact is, friend, you're right. I don't know what they did to you. I don't know. And I know when I bring something like unforgiveness or vengeance or bitterness or holding a grudge, when I bring something tender like that, I know I'm not speaking into a vacuum. I know you come in with fresh wounds. Some of you, you were wounded as a kid, and you've got layer after layer of scar tissue that has helped you navigate the world. I promise you one thing, as much as I don't know your individual situation, I will not minimize your pain. In fact, I'll probably do the opposite, right? Because I think honesty with what was done is very valuable when it comes to dealing with afflictions. But this is where I think David's going to be helpful for you and me as well. I think David gets the room whenever we talk about forgiveness. Because we're going to find him right where we left him last week. He is fleeing the throne because he's being pursued by friends, deep friends, who have betrayed him and a son who is looking to murder him. He's having a no good, rotten, horrible day. And then somebody comes and kicks him while he is down. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 16. And this is where we're going to pick it up. It's going to be a great passage. It's going to be helpful for us today, starting in verse 5 of chapter 16. And this is what the Lord has to say. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. All right. Great timing, right, for this guy to be throwing curses and stones. I mean, Shimei, and by the way, we don't really know how to say that name. I've heard seven different pronunciations. I'm going to call him Shimei today because that's the one that made the most sense to me. Friends, you can call him whatever you want. You want to know why? because he's dead, and he probably doesn't care. But for today, just for consistency, he is Shimei. And what we have is he's probably a guy that just loved how his family handled the kingdom, loved the way Saul did things, hates the way David does things. Of course, he wasn't going to show up when David was on a throne with a scepter in his hand and guards around him to to grieve and and to tell him how much he hated how the kingdom was being run, but he is going to use this as an opportunity to do it. He is going to criticize now because it makes sense to him, but it's massively inconvenient for David. But hey, when when has bitter criticism ever been all that convenient? Think about it. When you've been wounded, 
Was it in a timely fashion that you were wounded? Or was it when you felt vulnerable? Were, you, were, were your guard, was it down because it was a, just a tough time for you? Or maybe it was a friend that you weren't expecting that from? No. When rocks are thrown, it's never going to be convenient. 2 Samuel 9, or 16, verse 9, let's see how he responds. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you son of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Okay, the main idea here is David refuses to exercise retaliation. It was well within his power to do it, well within his right to do it. Legally, he could have done it, and he did not do it. In fact, retribution is actually one of the further things from his mind because it's got bigger fish to fry, right? Who's this guy? He's just throwing rocks. My son's trying to kill me, and he has an army at his disposal. And he, he's not bending. So this guy, I'm not really worried about this guy. There's a little bit of that going on. But what makes this interesting is this startling statement he says in there that we're not really going to preach around. We're going to go right at it because it's just a technical problem, at least for us. Because David says something that's interesting. He says, Maybe the Lord orchestrated this. Why stop him? God, God told him to do this. And, and who, know, who knows? Maybe the Lord sees the trouble I'm going through right now and comes to my aid. What's going on here? Why, why would the Lord choreograph a moment like this? And listen, there are varying answers depending on the source that you go to, right? I'm going to give you the two top theories. You could choose which one you like, but I'll, I'll just tell you the punchline. I think they both cooperate together very well. I don't think they compete. One is maybe David felt he deserved it. All you have to do is just go back a few chapters, chapters 11 and chapters 12, and you see he has the capacity for some pretty dark things. Murder, adultery. Shimei is not totally wrong. He is a man of blood. There is blood on his hands. Maybe not Saul's blood, but make no... Listen, he looked at his hands and he felt deep guilt over Uriah and the others that were around Uriah whenever he was killed. So, maybe there's that. Maybe, also, David believed that God is in charge of all events. It's true, God in the past has brought good out of evil. He has the capacity for that. I mean, the story of Joseph, if anything, it teaches you that, does it not? Just horrible thing after horrible thing after horrible thing, reconstructed to something beautiful, more in line with a masterpiece. I will submit that they both work well together. I think both these theories cooperate. God, but I will submit this, God does refurbish tragedy to make something beautiful. He does it all the time, all the time. It's not something he rarely does, he does it often. In fact, you could look at the worst tragedy ever committed. The most grotesque moment in the history of moments we actually find in Acts 4.27, and you can stay where you're at. But we see Peter praying, and he says this to the Lord, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Hey, listen, that means what it says it means. God is the architect of the cross, and yet he discharged his plan through the willing hands of men who decided of their own will and their own flesh to destroy Jesus out of their own sinful hearts. And both those are true at the same time. God did this, and man did this. In the most grotesque tragedy in the history of the world, God was redeeming his cosmos. So it's not that difficult to take a step sideways and see that Shimei here, he hated David. He's throwing rocks and dust and curses at him because he wanted to. Shimei wanted to do this. God didn't make him do what he did not want already to do. And yet at the same time, God accomplished so much more in this moment than just what Shimei is doing. Both is true. But if we step out of the technicality of this and really look again at the main idea, or at least the takeaway for you and me today, is Shimei is not repenting here. Did you notice that? He's not feeling real sorry for what he's doing. He sees nothing wrong with his own actions. In fact, if you were there to ask him, he'd probably say it's a sense of justice. He would say, David is getting what he deserves. Fill in the blank. This is getting what he deserves. So here's the question. Can David forgive him, or does repentance need to be available for forgiveness to happen? Some of you are in this situation now. That's why it matters. Someone's throwing rocks at you, right? Someone's throwing rocks. They're not stopping. Or maybe they used to and they no longer are throwing rocks at you, but they're not sorry for what they did and they don't see a problem with what they did, right? They're not repentant. What do you do? What do you do? This is where it gets complicated. Some say, yes, you forgive them. Others say, no, they have to repent first. So it's true. What does the Bible say? I think this might be a moment where words matter, and you and I can always and often be caught saying different things with identical words. So I'm going to do the best I can to be clear in this. If I am not, in fact, clear, I invite you to come up and talk to me about this afterwards. You can contact. I'm easy to get a hold of. I'd be happy to walk through this with you. But I think we can say David has an attitude of forgiveness. Let's just use that for a moment, attitude. He has an attitude of forgiveness by not exacting vengeance. But there's no reconciliation here between him and Shimei. Because why? Shimei's still looking for rocks to throw. He's still looking and scooping them up and hucking them at David. So Shimei doesn't see the need to be forgiven because he's not sorry. Now, the question could be asked, is it possible to love your enemy without rec reconciling with your enemy? I'm persuaded to say yes. The Bible shows us yes. Jesus says in Matthew 5, to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you even. To love your enemies. That's something we should do at all times with all people in all moments, no matter what the wound is. And why do we do this? Because that is the direction of our forgiveness the relationship we have with the Lord. That's, we'll call it vertical forgiveness. The vertical forgiveness we have is beautiful. It is from the Lord. And while we were loved as enemies, which means we were throwing rocks when he found us, he forgave us. Jesus bore the wounds of our actions. So at the same time and in the same way, our horizontal forgiveness, how we forgive the person next to us, has to be fashioned the same way. That means for the act of forgiveness to truly have taken place, there needs to be repentance. That might be shocking for some of you. This is what I mean. God does not reconcile with sinners who refuse to repent. He doesn't. We know this. He refuses to reconcile with sinners who refuse to repent. Neither are you required to reconcile, pull close to a tight, intimate relationship with people who do not repent. Is that shocking? 
We get this from the Bible. It's not my opinion. John 17, it says this. Christ says to pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, if, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if, capital I, capital F, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's conditional. There's a condition built in this. If he repents, forgive him. The old theologian John Stott, he cautions us when it comes to reconciling with people regardless of whether they've repented or not. He says we must beware of cheapening forgiveness. If we can restore intimate and full boundless fellowship to somebody who does not care does not repent and won't stop sinning, we're not showing the depth of love, he says. We're showing the shallowness of love in that moment. Here's an example maybe in modern times. If you have a parent, let's say, you've got parents who are manipulative, verbally abusive, emotionally abusive, and they will not stop. They're not repentant, and they don't admit that they're doing anything wrong. Restoring them to an intimate boundless fellowship without their repentance is not necessarily loving to them. And it's not a good picture of the act of forgiveness at all times. Love your enemy, sure. But reconciliation that is tight and intimate where communion has been totally restored and there's been a reunion that requires repentance, even if that repentance is broken and it stutters and it's in seed form. That's why we see Jesus saying, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Picks up a rock and throws it, and it hits, it lands. And he's like, yo, 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 I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, I repent, will you forgive me? Yes. He does it again. It's gonna be easy for you to go, well, he's not really sorry. He keeps picking up rocks. He's done it six more times. Jesus says, if you can see that they are confessing and repenting, you forgive them. And this is why. Because it's hard to stop sinning, isn't it? It's, it's hard to not always mishandle people, isn't it? Again, feel free to ask me more on this later. I will say the main idea, if I was to distill it down, is horizontal forgiveness must be shaped by our vertical forgiveness, and that requires repentance if what we want is a tight, boundless, intimate relationship. Ken Sandy, who runs a ministry called Peacemaker Ministries, he asserts that what David did in this moment is called positional forgiveness. Now, we used the word attitude a minute ago. He had an attitude or a heart for forgiveness. He would say that's a positional forgiveness. His heart is positioned to forgive. Now, let's just pretend in our story that Shimei noticed what he did was really harmful against God, against David, and against himself. and said, yo, listen, I am sorry. Can, can we come back into communion? Can we reunite together? Can we be one and the same? Can we walk together? Can, we have, can I have your trust and can I give you my trust? Can we do that? If David said yes, that would be called transactional forgiveness. So he's been able to break it up. Ken Sandy can break it up into two different ways of looking at it, a heart for it, positional, and then the actual act and the event of forgiveness being transactional. Tim Keller says it a little differently. He says, there are not two kinds of forgiveness, but two aspects of one kind of forgiveness. One can say that the first kind, which is the heart of forgiveness, must also always proceed reconciliation, but reconciliation may never happen, he says. Now you can see why it gets confusing, right? you got brilliant guys. They're using the same words, and they're saying slightly different things. But I think what we can do is put them together, because I'm fine with both, actually, as they stand on their own. It's easy to say, and I think proper to say, I have a forgiving heart right now. That guy threw a rock at me, and it hit, and it landed, and it hurt, and I absorbed his worst, and I have a forgiving heart. I love him or her as my enemy, 
but they don't see what they have done is wrong. They have not received my forgiveness. They've not repented. Therefore, the act of forgiveness hasn't really happened. Not yet anyway. I can pray for that. I could pray for that reconciliation to come. Listen, in our passage, David has options, and a lot of them. Abishai is quick to give him one that I think we all want for David. Abishai is quick to give him the option of vengeance here, right? And don't you secretly, when you read this, kind of want that to happen? I remember when I was a young man first hitting this passage for the very first time as a college student going, man, that was David lost an opportunity right there. This guy was willing to go up and do the dirty work, right? And David said, no, man, this guy's one heck of a friend that he would even offer something like that. We kind of want David to get this vengeance, And listen, this is the interesting thing about vengeance when we carry it in our heart. At least it's honest. At least it's honest because it takes the wound seriously. If you struggle with vindicating yourself through revenge, it's because you really honestly expected better from that person and you didn't get it. You didn't expect that to happen when it happened or how it happened. And it hurt. And you're right. There's an honesty to what vengeance wants to do, but it's unwise. And just because it's unwise, it doesn't stop us from wanting to get very good at it. And I think the leading way I see retribution, at least in the church, is by you and me just simply refusing ourselves to the other person. We refuse our, ab- our, our, our presence. We refuse our words. We refuse our heart. We refuse our prayers. I see you walk into a room. I walk out of the room. That's how we are typically retaliating against each other. Man. I see retaliation doing four things. And we're going to put them up on screen and I'm going to fly through them. But retaliation does do some pretty wicked things to us. First of all, retaliation can't even be measured. Not properly anyway, right? I mean, just consider this. Whenever you retaliate, no one has ever been paid back fairly before. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe you got a chance to return a rock. You picked up and threw a rock right back. Whatever that looked like for you. Didn't you feel like later on that you didn't get them good enough? Isn't there always, man, I could have, I mean, I did pull my punches. Now I don't feel totally satisfied. Or you feel a little bit of guilty because you overcompensated and you got them a little too good, right? And the other party always feels like you got them too good. This is how feuds build and develop. This is how feuds accrue interest over time. We're not meant to handle vengeance. We can't measure it correctly. If the Lord didn't say, vengeance belongs to me, if the Lord actually said, hey, listen, vengeance belongs to you, friend, but just be sure to measure it properly, right? I mean, don't get too crazy. Just whenever you're vengeful, just make sure it's just enough. We wouldn't even know how to do that. We would be blasting people left and right. Why? Because we're not meant to handle it. We don't even know how to measure it. Another thing, retaliation makes us very self-centered, reshapes our awareness, can't quit talking about what they did to us. Can't quit rehearsing it in our heads. Always justifying why we're going to do what we want to do or why we did what we did. Always doing it. And friend, when we slip into this gear, it is impossible to see the needs of others around us because all we could see is our own pain, just rehashing it over and over and over again. It's like if you were getting out of your, your car today and you accidentally slammed your hand in the car door, which by the way, I don't know how anyone has ever done that before. If you've done that, no judgment here, but I don't know how you did that, right? You know the door is going to close there, move your hand. But if you've ever done that, It's not like you're going to stop in that moment and say, hey, how's everybody else doing right now? You doing well? How are you feeling? Can I get anything for you? No. You're going to be looking at your glowing red hand, cussing in your heart at what you just did. All you can think about is yourself. And this is the way it is with pain. 
This is the way it is with pain. And retaliation puts us in that gear where all we can see is ourself. It also does something that deforms people. We see others only as what they did to us. Only. That person is what they did to us. They are no longer the aggregate form of good, their bad, the best parts about them, what God has created them to do, their failures, their needs, everything mixed together. All they are is this single-dimensional villain. That's how we see our villains, right? Single dimension. But we, well, we're complicated. We're in 3D, right? We are so nuanced and so complex, but not that person. They are only what they did to me. So it deforms people. Retaliation also views vengeance as a form of justice. It's not always the same thing, friends, especially when it's in our hands. Romans 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the difference. Vengeance is a personal vindication for personal purposes when it's in our hands. Justice is just moral accounting. It's just balancing. And this is why justice is best left to third parties. It's for that one reason. We have a hard time differentiating between the two, and we, we collapse them together very often. And God's vengeance, when he enacts vengeance, that's not for petty personal gain either. It's for retribution against crimes committed against himself and against his creation, namely you. Right? I mean, it's easy to see. Super easy to see. And I haven't told you anything about yourself you probably didn't already know before you walked in. We suffer when we are unforgiving. Everyone else around us suffers when we are unforgiving. We don't know how to deal with rock throwers. We don't know how to stop throwing rocks ourselves. We need help. We need help. Now, culture will come and offer you its own advice. Of course, it's so boring and predictable whenever it does this, but it does. Usually looking out for your own mental self, your own emotional health, But the gospel confronts much of that. The gospel is not a story of how God protected himself and withheld justice. The gospel is a story about how justice was delivered because he sacrificed himself. It runs against the grain of what we hear. Wrath fell upon Christ, not for wounds that he caused, but for wounds that I caused. I mean, that's the main idea of this. The main idea is that Shimei threw curses upon David. The curses probably hurt more than the rocks did. He threw curses upon David, and David absorbed them. But the big idea to this passage is that David points to a better David who absorbed a deeper curse. Jesus did not deserve the curse. I did. This is what we read in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is what this means. Jesus became the curse that drew the wrath of the Father in the fullest scope of the word. And that wrath that fell was perfectly measured. Perfectly measured. And in doing so, I found forgiveness. My vertical forgiveness was brought because of the suffering of another. And this is what it means for you and me. That means forgiveness for you means stepping into voluntary suffering. It's a suffering. Sure, it's an act of worship. It's an act of faith. It's also an act of suffering to forgive somebody else. Just as Jesus bore my crimes, so when I forgive somebody else, I am bearing the weight of what they did. That's a suffering. But there's good news to it. The gospel also says I'm free from being egocentric when it comes to wounds. I'm free from it. I can step out of this thing called unforgiveness prison. 
where I'm hoping someone else finds a downfall. Every time I see something on social media about them doing poorly, I rejoice inside. And every time they do well, I start to feel real grumpy inside. I am free from that. I'm free from the demand that, that they find retribution for what they did. I'm free. In fact, as a disciple that's shaped after Christ, I have forfeited that right to pay back. I've given it up. I've abandoned it. Listen, how, if, if this is true, and I'm, sub, I'm submitting that it is, I'm submitting that it is, how can we build a framework for forgiveness? I mean, what is the blueprint for it? What, what is a biblical way of forgiving? I'm going to give you a few bullets as we finish this up. One is forgiveness is not endorsement. I really want you to know that and remember it. We're not saying that what they did is okay. There's no point in acting like it didn't hurt or ignoring the fact that it did hurt. That's just dishonest. But the, but the whole objection of, but you don't know what they did, is silenced by this. We're not saying that it's okay. Just as, just as God's forgiveness of us does not endorse what we did in the past, our forgiveness of other people does not endorse what they did. So it's not an endorsement. Another point, it's always your responsibility to go first. Always. Whenever it means forgiving. Matthew 5 says, if your brother has something against you, go to him. Matthew 18 says, if you have something against your brother, go to him. Doesn't matter who started it. Doesn't matter who landed the first blow, the last blow, the biggest blow. Does not matter. Doesn't matter how dirty it got. You're responsible for beginning the just the process of, re, of reconciliation, whether it even gets there or not, whether it even lands in perfect reunion again or not. You're responsible for starting it. The third point: understand that when you have forgiven someone that has repented, you have started a marathon. You have not finished a 5K. Some of you, you know this already, right? Nothing is splotchier than the path of forgiveness for hurtful wounds. Nothing is sloppier than this, especially if it's been a deep wound or it came from somebody very close. I want you to know it's going to take repeated trips to the cross, repeated trips to the foot of the cross where we look at our vertical forgiveness and adore God that would love us so much to deliver wrath but not on us to deliver vengeance, but not on us, to give grace to us, mercy to us, to adore the beauty of what God has done in his gospel for mankind through the person of Jesus over and over again. When we take communion, it's a hundred communions of holding bread and holding juice and realizing what we're proclaiming by that. That's what it will take to continually forgive some wounds over and over again. Man, it's tough, friend, but listen, if you can't bring yourself to have even a forgiving heart, the issue is probably not the other person anymore. It's probably you. It's gospel amnesia. That's all it is. That's all it is. Fourth, forgiveness is granted before it's felt, right? It's granted before it's felt. If you wait until you're in a forgiving mood, if you're looking for that vibe, it's probably never gonna find you. You'll always have grudges. But where your treasure is, there your heart follows. And I know I took that out of context, but not really, right? It's talking about money, but I'm talking about something much more valuable than money. That's our heart. That's our trust. Listen, number five, sometimes a reunion, a returned fellowship does not happen. I'm gonna be careful here. We've already looked a little bit at what happens when people won't stop throwing rocks or if they just think they're right and they just don't even think that there's a sin involved. We're, we're to love our enemies even if communion cannot be rebuilt. We are to love our enemies. But I want to be careful here, and I want you to be careful here, because there's a couple main issues that I see when it comes to how we handle reconciliation. 
I've seen it abused in one area in the church where there's been a small transgression or seemingly small or sometimes no transgression at all. And one person says, I can't reconcile with them because of what they did. I can't even be in the same room with them because of how they've abused me or hurt me. And then when you really do a little bit of investigation, you found out that there wasn't really a lot of abuse at all. It's just that they interrupt you a lot when you talk, right? Or you don't like their Enneagram or they're annoying or something, right? You're like, I just can't even be with that person. It's not good for me. It's not healthy for me. That's not what this is saying right here. That's not, that is not our, our opportunity to pull the ripcord of community, okay? That's one area I see it abused. The second area I see it abused is we feel compelled, even shamed, to reconnect with an abuser. And I'm going to use that word abuse the way it's really supposed to be used, okay? Because I know it's starting to drain in its weight, in its value in culture today because we use it for everything. Everything is abuse today. But I'm talking about real physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse. If you've been abused, friend, Listen, loving your enemy does not necessarily mean reuniting in a friendship. It does not. Sometimes that reunion's not going to happen. If you're unsure of this, by the way, you don't trust your appraisal of the matter, this is where church elders can be helpful. This is where your missional community leader can be very helpful. But if they feel like it's out of their lane, this is what elders do. We can help listen, ask some hard questions, maybe see not just what you're saying, but maybe what you're not saying and help you navigate something that is very difficult to navigate. So if that's you, we're, we're available to you as a pastoral team. Another point, refuse to bring up the offense again. Don't bring it up anymore. Don't bring it up to the offender. Don't bring it up to others. Don't even bring it up to yourself, right? Fight the urge to retract forgiveness by rehashing it constantly over and over again. I mean, God says, as far as the east is from the west, so are your sins are from his consideration. So be it. So be it for you and for me. And the last point, with those who are far from Christ, those who do not love Jesus, explain the gospel through the lens of forgiveness, justice, wrath, wounding. It's a great opportunity, man. Everyone you know, everyone you know who is far from Jesus, they carry wounds. And they've not known what to do with it. And all they've had are these rip-off, knock-off strategies that the world has given them. And none of them are working. We know that. Everyone you sit down with, everyone that lives around you, have strategies that are misshapen, like cramming it down, acting like it's ignored, pretending that it didn't hurt. When you explain how God's forgiveness of you empowered you to forgive others, when you show them how the gospel brought you free from being vindictive, free from that arena of retribution, well, then what it does is it takes the words of the gospel and it shines lights on it from different angles. It, it illuminates it of sort. It's the heartbeat of the gospel story, really. Because for the forgiven person, we are free from holding vengeance and being held down by vengeance. We're free to let God dispense judgment with pure justice, properly measured, as he sees fit for his own glory, not for our own glory. Listen, even if that's you here and you would call yourself far from God or you're watching online and you would call yourself far from God and you've been holding on to that wound, it's a real wound. Listen, you're right to be angry. You should be angry. You should be furious at what was done. You should demand that justice is delivered. That thing in you that wants the scales to be righted, 
Where do you think that came from? Not evolution, friend. That thing in you that cries out for justice on your behalf is actually put in you by God himself. God who rights the wrongs and brings the lowly up as he brings the proud down. He is the one scale equalizer. Listen, as horrible as your wounding is, you're guilty of more. Sure, there's blood on their hands, but there's more blood on yours. Because you're not guilty of just throwing rocks at a, at a king. You're, you're guilty of throwing rocks at Christ himself. But the Bible says in Romans that when God finds us, he does so while we are in the act of throwing rocks. He finds us in our worst state. He doesn't find us running to him. He finds us running away from him. He finds us in our worst place. But I've said this for years. Jesus is perfect for rock throwers. He's perfect. And he's perfect, by the way, for those who have received some serious rocks, who have absorbed some pain in their life. He's perfect for them as well. Why? Because he understands the pain of being damaged and betrayed and mishandled. But if you want to step out of this prison of being held down by this personal hunger for vengeance, if you want to step out of this prison of unforgiveness, you can't export forgiveness, friend, until you've imported it. You can't. You, you can't forgive somebody else unless you have been able to see yourself as truly free and truly forgiven. All other strategies are counterfeit. They've left a large hole. You know it as well as I do. And they leave you in prison. So what I submit to you today is just to give your life to the Lord. To truly receive the forgiveness that was fought for, bled for for you.